0: Well, good evening. I'll try that again. Good evening. Well, this is our second installment of a series of studies in the Song of Songs. You can turn with me to that book in your Bibles, the Song of Songs. I gave quite an extensive introduction last week, so I'm not going to recap that introduction. But this book is a book of poetry. It is a book of mystery. It is a book of Love. It is a musical play about love, and it is a figurative story about communion. Communion between God the Father and mankind, between Christ the bridegroom and the church, his bride, and of course between the Holy Spirit, the great comforter, and the persecuted, suffering church. So there's a lot here. There are many layers that we'll look at as we study this book. Many, many layers. But the primary application has to do with the fact that this is an allegory, yes, but it is also a love poem, an Eastern love poem, that is dealing with the subject of romantic love. And that subject can be used allegorically to describe the mutual love of Christ and the church, but it's through the images of the bridegroom and the bride. So primarily, we'll be looking at this as it's written to be interpreted, a love poem. There's so much here. The main characters are Solomon, the young king, and Shulamite, uh, the young country girl. So there is definitely a very clear way to read this and study this. We went through an introduction and made our way through chapter 1, verse 14 last week. Now, this evening we'll continue using a, a translation slightly different than the NIV that I use, the NIV 84, and uh, Justin has all of the slides, and we'll pick up where we left off on slide 11, and you can see you can read along with me. Uh, this uh, translation is by Dr. S. Craig Glickman on Intervarsity Press. It is a very good translation. it is very similar to the NIV but just different enough that I think it's a little bit better for teaching this book, especially for teaching a book that has so much back and forth between characters, and it's not always clearly delineated who is speaking and to whom. So what I do like about this translation that we'll go through is it becomes very clear with this translation who is speaking and to whom that person is speaking. That in and of itself is huge in terms of interpreting this book. Now, again, I don't have time to go through all of the different aspects of the introduction that we covered in detail last week, so I would encourage you, if you're here for the first time and you want to catch up, go back, listen online, and you'll get a whole lot of information. But this evening, we're going to jump right in. One of the things I mentioned last week, in chapters one through three, we have what is referred to as the birth of romance. So it kind of brings us from romance, really, just right up until the wedding day. The courtship. And it's given to us in 10 snapshots. And uh, we are very familiar today with trying to capture experiences or capture moments with a snapshot. We do it all the time. And I remember a time when people weren't constantly carrying a camera. You know, people would take their camera if they wanted to take pictures, and, and photographers still do. But nowadays, people with phones, even if you have... The least expensive phone, even a flip phone, uh, generally will have some sort of camera. So the idea of being able to take a picture in a moment's notice is very common to us. These are mental pictures communicated in poetry, but we understand what it is to take a snapshot. Sadly, I say sadly because I really don't like this practice, there's a lot of people who, you know, it isn't a beautiful mountain unless it's a selfie with you in it. To be honest with you, I don't understand it because quite frankly, I think people know what they look like and anyone you could show the picture to would know what you look like as well. But for some reason, we have to sort of photobomb what could be a beautiful picture with a picture that's distorted and out of focus because your arm is just so long. But we will see some pictures, some snapshots that are taken by an individual. Like for example, uh, we saw that there was a snapshot taken uh, by the uh, by, the uh, bride of herself and how she saw herself last week. And that was very helpful in understanding this romance. Uh, there was also a snapshot uh, taken by the bride of the character of the king. And then there was a snapshot taken by the king of the bride. And finally, a snapshot of the king taken by the bride yet again. So we went through those first four. But I want to spend a little bit uh, of time in what is really just two snapshots this evening. Primarily, I would say because it's a lot, but secondarily because it's Calvary Kids Night, and we like to not go very late with our study at a consideration for parents, kids, and uh, all that happens during the middle of the week. So with that, as a recap and introduction to jump back in, let's pray, and we will read through this evening, chapter 1, verse 15, just through chapter 2, verse 7. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, this precious book in your word that is a book of poetry, but is also a book of allegory and mystery. It is also a book that teaches us about romantic relationships, human relationships, and uh, so helpful to have a book in your word to teach us these things, and so that we might have successful relationships, that we might find successful relationships if we're not in one at the moment, if we're, if we're single. And, and if we're married or we, in a relationship, it can improve the relationship you've blessed us with. So we look to you this evening. We pray that you would truly speak to our hearts and give us wisdom and understanding. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's start where we left off. In chapter 1, verse 15, and again, you can read along with me on the screen. Uh, we are going to see this section verse through verse 3 of chapter 2, This is a picture of their courtship, the character of their courtship. This picture will tell us a lot about their relationship, and it's taken by both of them. So both of them participate in communicating what their relationship is like. And so we start in verse 15, and we'll read just 15 and 16 to start. And this is the king speaking to the bride. Behold, you are beautiful, my darling. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. And then you have the bride speaking to the king. Behold, you are handsome, my beloved. Indeed, you are pleasant. And our couch, or that is where they were seated, our couch is verdant. That is green. That, that indicates that they're outside. That's really what that word tells us. In these two verses, we see the, the first extended conversation between them. It's an expression of love and affection, Now, I remember, maybe you're familiar with The Princess Bride. Great movie, maybe not for kids of too young an age. as Some kids enjoy it, and they get a little bit older. But I remember when Michelle and I went to see this movie, and uh, we went to see this movie in the movies when it came out in the 80s. So uh, one of my favorite movies, actually have this movie, enjoy it a lot. But there's a point uh, at which you realize this story is being read by a grandfather to a grandson. And they're going through it. The grandson's young, and it's a story, and it has all kinds of interesting things, but it's also a romance. So the little boy, uh, he stops the grandfather and says, Wait, Grandpa, wait. Is this a kissing story? Is this a kissing book? You know, because he wasn't interested in that. And I think a lot of people read a book like that. If you're not interested in it, you might stop and say, Is this a kissing book? Let me tell you, it is. It's a book about romance, and so, yes, it is a kissing book. So, just a warning up front. One of the first things we see, according to the king, she has beautiful eyes and a beautiful face. It is not afraid to communicate that, and he does communicate that in poetic language. Behold, you are beautiful, your eyes are doves. And we may not understand the language, but remember they are, you know, In the outside environment, that's generally where romances took place in the ancient world. They were often supervised or chaperoned. But in this case, he communicates that she has beautiful eyes and a beautiful face. He, described by the bride, is handsome and pleasant to be with. Now, let's just stop a moment and say that, you know, that's what you would hope would be the response or the view or the snapshot taken by two people in love. You would hope that uh, he would say that she's beautiful, beautiful eyes, beautiful face, pleasant to look at is basically what he's saying, uh, and that he is handsome to her and pleasant to be with. And and if that's not the case, you know, it, it amazes me. There are some people that try to make relationships work. And I'm not talking about someone who's in a committed relationship like a marriage. I'm talking about someone who's trying to build a relationship, a romantic relationship with someone. And, uh, you know, the whole relationship is just fraught with challenges and trials. And, you know, you ask them, well, how's it going? And and, and it's all like aggravation and grief. And they're not even married. And you think to yourself, probably not going to work out. You know, you would hope in a romantic relationship that the early part of the relationship would be not the best, but certainly would be filled with this type of conversation, right? When I hear stories of people in a relationship and they're fighting and, again, before marriage, you know, it's conflict and they don't get along and, you know, the things they're saying about each other aren't very nice, I have to really take a step back and say, maybe you should hit the pause button. I will often say that. Most of the time, those relationships are codependent and very unhealthy. Uh, Why are you in a relationship that you're miserable if you're not committed? Why would you stay in that relationship unless there's something wrong with you that needs to be addressed before you get involved in a healthy relationship. So I think that this is the ideal. It's not a perfect relationship. But let me just say that at least when you're in your courtship, at least when you're falling in love, these are the kind of things that should be in your heart, on your mind, and come from your lips. I'm not saying there aren't moments that when you might frustrate the person you're in love with. But clearly, this is the ideal. This is what you should experience. Now they are both comfortable with each other they 're comfortable at home and they 're comfortable in the country. This is one of the things that I think is very important when people go from being in a relationship to talking about being in a committed relationship, engagement, uh, becoming fiances, and you know perhaps moving towards marriage. Uh, you have to be comfortable with that person I mean ideally, not so comfortable that you are, you know are, are not making the most of the time or treating each other nicely, but comfortable. Comfortable is good, right? Uncomfortable, awkward, not good, right? You expect that at the beginning of the relationship because you don't know each other. Comfort means that you've reached the point where you know each other. And of course you don't truly know someone until you live with them in a committed relationship and marriage, but but let's be honest, if you can be comfortable before you get married chances are you you will have a good relationship moving forward. If you're not comfortable, you're not ready. But what we learn here is they're both comfortable with each other, and we read, and I'll read the whole section, and then we'll go back over it, starting in verse 17, and again up on the screen. This is the bride speaking to the king after she's complimented him. She says, the beams of our houses are cedars, our rafters, cypresses, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valley, a lily among thorns, thus is my darling among young women, the king says to the bride. He responds in verse 2. As a lily among thorns, thus is my darling among the young women. And then the bride says to the king, as an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. In his shade I took great delight and sat down, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Now, this is language Uh, employed to communicate that they're very comfortable with one another and they enjoy spending time together. Not to oversimplify relationships, but that's kinda what you're going for if you're thinking about getting married. You're kinda hoping that you're attracted to each other, you enjoy spending time together, you're comfortable with each other, and you feel that that person is the most special person in the world. I know that kinda sounds trite and glib, but you would be amazed how many people get married and they don't feel that way, or there's problems they overlook and they don't really want to address. They walk past those things in order to just get to the finish line, hoping that somehow, oh, when we get married, it will all work out. I'm here to tell you, it doesn't. The problems that you don't resolve before you get married, they become larger problems once you get married. So clearly, you want to try to address those issues up front. Now, you can't address all issues, but you can address many. And if you're aware of something in a relationship with someone, you're aware of it, and you just kind of sweep it under the carpet and say, well, you know, I'm sure it won't bother me once we get married. Yeah, right. It'll drive you crazy. And then you'll be kicking yourself thinking, why didn't I resolve this up front? why did I drag this into marriage? Why didn't I just slow down and tap the brakes or even slam and screech the brakes before I move forward without addressing these major issues? So a lot of people, you know, they get caught up in love and that's okay. But sometimes they get caught up not just in love, but they get caught up in just, I just want to be married. And like, that's going to fix everything. Listen, I've said to many people who are struggling with being single, believe me, it's better to be single with the hope of falling in love than married and not in love. You know, I, that, that, looking back with regret and resenting your life and your decisions, you don't want to be that person. If, if you're on this side or on, on the front side of, of a relationship like marriage and you haven't been married, at least you have the opportunity to pursue that, even if the opportunity isn't there at the moment. But once you're married, Now you're working backwards, and you're trying to address problems that you should have addressed up front. So that's one of the lessons we learned by just looking at the descriptions that are used here by this couple. Uh, You can analyze a lot because of their interactions. It's poetic, but you can still analyze quite a bit. Now, one of the things I said, they're comfortable with each other, and they're comfortable at home and in the country. Notice in this verse, verse 17, they're found together in a very relaxed and intimate setting. It's described as outside... Uh, She says, the beams of our houses are cedars, our rafters, cypresses. So clearly they're outside, and she's saying, you know, this is our home, you know, not necessarily in the woods, but certainly outside. Uh, Much of this Eastern love poem takes place outside, okay? Uh, That's for a number of different reasons. Some of it takes place inside, but (laughs) a lot of it takes place outside. And so she says, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valley, In other words, outside in this garden-like atmosphere, she feels like a flower among the surroundings. She feels special. Now, addressing this to both men and women, but specifically women, that's a very important emotion. That's a very, very important realization you must have if you're going to move forward in a committed relationship. You should feel special. I have counseled, my wife and I have counseled far too many people over the years, done too many weddings, (laughs) not to know that if you don't feel special, you never will. I mean, if you're going to commit your life to this person, shouldn't you feel special? This is true for men and women. Shouldn't you feel special? If you don't, what will happen is you'll get married and then you're going to spend all your time saying, you don't make me feel special, you know, and that is no way to live. It really isn't. But love has caused her to change how she views herself. Before, she didn't view herself as so special. We saw that last week. She viewed herself, not negatively, but she didn't think she was all that special. But he has made her feel special. And that's now how she views herself. Listen, in marriage, how your spouse views you is how you will ultimately view yourself. Maybe it shouldn't be that way, but that's the way it is. In other words, if you're living with someone who's constantly telling you you're lazy and you're no good, or, you know, why didn't you clean the house, or why don't you get a job, you know, you start to view yourself in the way that that person views you. Because you're in close proximity, you can't help it. You really can't help it. And again, maybe it shouldn't be that way, but that's what happens when you're in a marriage. So, she has now begun to see herself through his eyes. And I think for men, it's very important to remember that, That for women too. This is good on both sides. It isn't just a one-sided comment. But, you know, you, you have to remember that you are going to begin to see yourself through your spouse's eyes, through the one that you love's eyes. And, and that should be a good thing. It should make you feel special. It should make you feel unique. It should not drag you down and make you feel bad. If that's the case, then there are problems that need to be resolved before you move forward. Now, he finds her to be unique among women. Now, remember, she says, I'm a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valley. Her way of poetically saying, hey, listen, I I feel special. And what does he say? A lily among thorns. Thus is my darling among the young women. And basically, he's saying, I don't even see any other women. You're all that I see when I compare you to everyone else, I see a lily, and everybody else, I see thorns. And that's to say that there was no other interest outside, at least in this love poem, there's no interest outside of this woman. And it's important to see that. Now, some people have said, well, wait a minute, this is the Song of Solomon. Didn't Solomon ultimately have a thousand women in his life? Yeah, he did. And we'll talk some about this Some have suggested, this is an interesting suggestion, because this seems to have been written about when he was very young, that this was his first love and that maybe perhaps something happened, you know, and it took a thousand women to try to fill that void. Now, I think that's a hopelessly romantic comment. Whether it's true or not, I don't know, but this is something that happened when he was very young. What happened after that, I don't know, but these are young people at, at a point in their life where the ideals are held up. And uh, I'll leave it at that for now. We'll talk some more about it as we go through our study. So he finds her to be unique among women. She feels special, and he finds her unique. And she finds him unique among men. And she elaborates. And again, this is poetry So oftentimes in Hebrew poetry, something is said, it's stated again, and then it's expounded upon. This happens in the Psalms, this happens in Proverbs, it happens in Job, it happens in uh, Ecclesiastes, it happens in all the poetical books. Uh, That's Hebrew poetry. It's called parallelism. The idea is you say, oh, the sky is beautiful. The sky is very beautiful. The sky is so beautiful, I could look at it all day. And that would be an example of you know, taking it to that next degree. It's not so much about the rhyme. It's about the increase in praise. And in this case, I'm I'm using the example of describing the sky. But it would be the same even in this love poem. So he finds her unique, and she finds him to be unique among men. And so she responds to his saying that she's a lily among thorns. The bride says to the king in verse 3, as an apple tree among the trees of the forest so is my beloved among the young men. In his shade I took great delight and sat down, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. So the idea is that in a forest there are many trees, but an apple tree is very pleasant to be with because it has fruit. And so she's just likening him like she was likened to a lily. He's likening her to an apple tree, and that apple tree is far better than those other trees which produce no fruit, Uh, at least if you're going to uh, be in the in the forest or be in the uh, scenery in the outside, and uh, you, you want apples? Well, they're, they're going to be on an apple tree. So she uses that. She finds rest and fulfillment in him and in no other. She's only interested in him. She is only interested in him. He is only interested in her. Again, a very important principle in committed relationship. Now, some have suggested... And, uh, you know, you, you don't know how much to read into some of these comments. Uh, what does she mean when she says, uh, his fruit was sweet to my taste? It could be referring to them kissing. It could be, very much. Uh, it may just mean, though, that just being with him is enjoyable. So I, I, at this point in the account, not really sure. As we go through the account, it be, does become more obvious that it's a kissing book. Okay, so just saying that now, all right? But that could be uh, an intimation of what she means. May or may not be at this point. Probably, possibly not. Okay. Now, as we continue into the next snapshot, that was a snapshot of the character of their courtship. The only other snapshot I want to look at this evening, given the time that we have, is not a character of their courtship, but a character of their love. And we've seen a little of this, but it gets a little deeper. And this is a snapshot taken by the bride. She's looking at their relationship, and she begins to describe the love they have. It's interesting, when you counsel with a couple, uh, it could be premarital, it could be marital counseling, uh, oftentimes uh, it's the woman who's more aware of the state of the relationship. You know, men have a different focus in the relationship And women tend to be more aware of the state of the relationship, the love between two people. Uh, That's something that generally, I'm making a generalization, women are more attuned to, men a little less so. And uh, maybe you disagree with that, and that's fine, but generally I think that's true. This seems to be the case here in that she has a good understanding of the character of their love. Let's look at verses 4 through 7, and then we'll break that down. Now the bride says in soliloquy, and you'll see this a lot, it just basically means she's speaking aloud her thoughts. She says, he has brought me to the banquet hall, and his banner over me is love. Sustain me with raisin cakes, and refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. Oh, that his left hand were under my head, and his right hand embraced me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles of the hinds of the field, not to arouse her, not to awaken love until it pleases. That's quite a statement there. She basically, at one point in verse 4, is speaking to herself, and then she speaks to the king when she says, sustain me with raisin cakes and refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. And then she says to herself, sort of her inner thought, Uh, Oh, that his left hand were under my head and his right hand embraced me. And then she speaks to the daughters of Jerusalem and adjures them not to awaken love until it pleases. Okay, let's break this down. Now, after having been in the countryside, they're found together in a public and regal setting in the palace. He is a king after all. And his love for her is evident to everyone around them. He has brought me to the banquet hall, verse 4, and his banner over me is love. Now let me explain the imagery, because on an ancient battlefield, as one example, when armies would march out, they would march under a banner. In many ways, they did until very recently. March under a banner so that you, you know where the forces are. And that banner would be a standard, and it would describe the forces that were under that banner. It would would, uh, identify them, but it was put up very high so that everyone could see. Those banners were oftentimes also placed on the top of castles and larger towers so that everyone could see who was there. So the banner is not something that you just sort of wave around. Banner is placed up high so that everyone can see. So when she says He's brought me to the banquet hall and his banner over me is love. What she's saying is that his love for her is evident to everyone around them. Be a pretty bad situation if you were dating and people started to meet your significant other, right? And they said, oh, who is this? Oh, this is my friend. You know, my, you know What? We've been dating for three months. I'm your friend? Or... Uh, You don't get introduced or, you know, there's no identification of like, oh, who'd you come here with? You know, there's no no banner over that person to, to be very clear that you care about them. People should look at the two of you and say, oh, they're together, right? Shouldn't be necessary to even ask. And that's the idea. Okay, that's the idea. So his love for her is evident to everyone around them. That is a very important principle in relationships. I think it's true on both sides, but especially as it relates to men and women, or men toward women. Notice that he's privately and publicly consistent. That is, he's the same person in the countryside that he is in the palace. He's not like a different person. It's not like, you know, hey, listen, you know, just, you know, we're in church, so you sit on one side of the church, and I'll sit on the other side of the church, you know. Now, sometimes people do that because... They're not really sure where the relationship is going. They don't want to announce that they've been on a couple of dates. And, you know, from my vantage point, I can see something's going on. You know? Like, gee, they used to sit in the same area. Now he's here and she's all the way over there. Like, what's... You know, they're trying to keep a lid on it. But once you get into a relationship, you know, at that point, you know, it's kind of okay to share a pew. You know, it's okay to, to, to sit next to each other. But some people get a little crazy. Anyway, this man is the same in private as he is in public. That's consistency. And that's a very important principle because you don't want somebody who's going to change faces like some people change hats. You know, that's very important, consistency. And he's never ashamed of her around others either. Never ashamed. And so she says those words, his banner over me is love. That's what people see when they look at her, that she is loved by the king. Now, I'll share a little bit more on this before we close, but remember that this is an allegory of our relationship with Christ. We're the bride, and he's the king. And so these principles are very important as it relates to a description of our love relationship with Christ. We'll come back around that as we close. So now we see that she's a little lovesick, and you see this in verses 5 and 6. She says to the king, sustain me with raisin cakes and refresh me with apples for I am famed with love. And then she says to herself, oh, that his left hand were under my head and his right hand embraced me. So she's really describing her feelings. How does she feel? Knowing that the king loves her, how does she feel? Well, she's lovesick. She desires him and to be with him physically. Uh, To put it in very simple terms, she wants to make love to him. She wants to be with him. Now, she's not married, but she desires that. And and that's the way it should be before you're married. You should desire that, right? So that's very normal, and it's natural. And by the way, uh, she expresses that to herself in soliloquy. She talks to the king. She speaks to the king. She says she's faint with love. But the description of her thoughts and her desires she keeps to herself, They're shared with us so that we'll know them, but they're not shared with the bride or from the bride to the groom or to the bridegroom just yet. So she desires him physically. She wants to be with him. And let me say this, to feel less than that would cast doubt on the advisability of marriage. Uh, I would say that that is a prerequisite to getting married. If you're not interested in being with that person physically, if you're not interested and lovesick for that person when you get married, Really, I mean, where do things go from there? You know, that's that's prerequisite, and yet people kind of move forward thinking, "Oh, you know, we're just kind of praying." And listen, I know that there are arranged marriages, and I know that not everyone in the world uh, is in a love relationship in marriage, and many people have gotten married in arranged marriages, and it's worked out wonderfully. I mean, the principles are still the same. I mean, this could have been an arranged marriage in the sense that that's how they met. But they have clearly fallen in love, and, and I guess that's the point we want to hold on to here. You should be lovesick with the person that you're going to marry, even if the marriage was arranged. I, again, people think arranged marriage means you sort of show up, and you know they take off the veil, like uh, with uh, Rachel and Leah. You know, you find out oh, I married the wrong one. You know, I mean, I know in certain countries and cultures, there's a whole process. They have a, like a, a mediator and a mitigator and they, they, the families get together and there's a bio. And, and, and listen, that's okay. That's one way of doing things. But once two people find themselves together, they have to work on their relationship and get to this place. Regardless of how they started, they got to get to this place. And that takes some work, but it also takes an understanding of what a relationship looks like. And so God gives us in his word a beautiful picture of love. And so all of these principles are very good to hold on to, and when we compare them to the relationships maybe we're working on or some of our relationships that are not going so well, it helps us to understand the ideal. Okay, finally, and this is perhaps the most important thing that we see in the section we're covering this evening in verse 7, she, after feeling very strongly about how she desires this guy, by the way, Oh, that his left hand were under my head and his right hand embraced me. If you work that out in your mind, it isn't too hard to figure out what they're doing. Okay? We're all, well, we're not all adults here, but we're certainly, (laughs) most of us here, adults, and we understand what that's describing. And that's what she desires. And that's not dirty or nasty or wrong, it's human sexuality. And as we talked about in our introduction, that's what this book is all about. So after expressing how she feels and what she desires, um, which is very normal, and the king will express his desires as well, but the woman here, the bride, expresses her desires, and after she does so, she then turns to the chorus, or the daughters of Jerusalem, and adjures them, O daughters of Jerusalem, she adjures them by the gazelles or the hinds of the field, not to arouse, not to awaken love Until it pleases. So here with a a very strong, lovesick desire, right? She's faint with love. She asks him to sustain her because she's faint with love. She desires to be with him physically. But then she turns to the chorus and expresses a warning not to arouse or to awaken love until it pleases. Very, very important. Because we live in an age where if it feels good, do it, you know? I mean, we live in an age where there's no restraints, on affection and you know there really should be I used to always say this and it's been a while since I did young adults ministry but we always used to say like attention in dating you know affection in engagement you know you start to show that kind of affection once you're in a committed relationship and then passion in marriage and it needs to be broken up like that and and you don't want to cross those lines and that's essentially what she's saying right Don't become passionate until it's the right time. Well, when is the right time? Well, clearly marriage is the right time. This couple never becomes passionate until after they get married. So she suppresses her feelings. Notice I didn't say represses her feelings. She suppresses her feelings. There's a difference between suppression and repression. Repression is what most people in the church do. Oh, I don't feel that way. Oh, I've actually never even thought about that, you know? They're in love with someone, but like, well, have you ever thought about what your wedding night's going to be like? Oh, no, it hasn't even. I never even considered that. I never even thought. I mean, really? What are you going to do, pray? I mean, what are you, on your wedding night? Like, I mean, put, put it through the computer. And, you know, it's amazing to me how repressed we can be in the church. And I've seen it. I remember there was a book. I always like to mention this because it was a stupid book. And I think it was a very dumb book. But it was this book that came out right about the time Michelle and I were doing, uh, uh, pre, uh, we we're doing a lot of premarital counseling we we're doing young adults ministry and the book was I Kissed Dating Goodbye and I was like if you kiss dating goodbye and kiss marriage goodbye and then the guy that wrote it I think his name was Josh Harris or something I don't know but he wrote the book and then all of a sudden he got married and people were like well, well didn't you kiss dating goodbye oh no I, I was in courtship I'm like wait a minute now what are you, what? so you sold a lot of books okay but you dated <laughs> because that's what you have to do. And and when you're in a love relationship and you're really feeling strongly about that person, you're going to have those feelings, those sexual feelings. You're going to have those desires. It's quite normal. In fact, if you don't, you got issues. So what do you do with that? Well, the bride tells us. She wants to do those things, very normal, but she suppresses them. She doesn't repress it. She doesn't pretend she doesn't feel that way or try to put that aside Listen, conscious restraint is not denial. Denial is subconscious. It's like, oh, no, 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 oh, no, no. Yeah, but really, if you're honest with yourself, and by the way, let me tell you something, just a little note, the people that fall in their relationships before marriage, fall into passion, uh, are almost always the people who are repressing their feelings because all of a sudden, they sneak out on them. All of a sudden, you know, Oh, they did feel that way, but they were denying it, so they had no fortitude against it. Whereas the person that suppresses those feelings recognizes, hey, listen, maybe we shouldn't hang out too much and definitely not too much alone now that we're getting closer to getting married. And, oh, maybe we shouldn't put ourselves in this situation. And, you know, that's what happens when you suppress the feelings. When you repress them, you're like, oh, no, it's okay. We're fine. We don't do anything. Yeah, until you're in the pastor's office confessing your sin. That's, I'm just telling you, I'm talking straight because you know what? That's the way it is. It's the way it is. Anyway, so conscious restraint is not denial. Denial is subconscious. It's, it's below the surface. Anyway, what she does is she advises others to wait for marriage and not to force the development of love. The best relationships I have observed are those within and without the church, are those where two people have gotten to know each other very well before they got physical. The worst relationships are the ones, my observation, where they got physical before they really knew each other. And and what happens is when you get too physical and too passionate beforehand, what happens is you sort of stifle the part of the relationship that would have happened if you just waited. So we're going to talk more about this. It's a lot to think about. But as we close, I want to remind you that this is a picture of our relationship with Christ. So we had this one snapshot, right, which was the uh, character of their courtship, and we had a snapshot which was the character of their love, and we see that there is restraint in their relationship. But how does that relate to our relationship with Christ? Well, keep in mind that the bridegroom, being Christ, and the bride, representing us, have a love relationship, and while we can't relate to the physicality of it, we can relate to the intensity. And we should have that kind of relationship. We see in, in this example here that Christ loves us, cares for us, and that our response should be wanting to spend time with him. And that our he sees us as uniquely special because God is able to have that relationship with each and every one of us, and it's special Of course, we only have that relationship with him, and we seek to spend time with him. It's a description of how we should relate to God. And of course, once you understand that Christ's banner over you is love, once you understand that he loves you supremely, then of course you're going to feel that the way that a bride feels love for the bridegroom, not the same, but to the same degree, you're going to feel loved. And you may not be faint with a passionate love, but it will be a a desire and affection for Christ that is spiritual and appropriate. And of course, like the consummation that exists between a bridegroom and a bride, there is that very same word is used to describe that moment when Christ comes again for his church. And we long for that consummation. We long for the time when Christ comes for us when he, re- he receives us into his presence for all eternity. So yes, these pictures are different. One is a physical relationship, but as Paul talks about it in other places in scripture, that physical relationship between a man and a woman that is normal, natural, and designed by God is a picture, is the allegory that is used to describe the intensity of the relationship that we should have with Christ. Amen? So with that, I would say, read back over the passage this week and perhaps think about it that way. It's good to do that as a meditation. Uh, look at it and, and really try to relate. You're the, regardless of male or female, you're the bride, he's the, he's the bridegroom, and, and, and ask yourself those questions. Do I have that kind of love relationship? Do I have a passion for God the way this, this bride had a passion for the king? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you. Again, teaching us through this wonderful love poem. You've given us insight and understanding. Uh, and we ask that we would have that kind of relationship with you. We pray that we would experience a true love for you. And that we would receive love from you. That we would recognize that as, as the king loved the bride, we are so loved by you. And give us that understanding. To know that you loved us so much that you came and died on the cross for our sins. Of course you rose again on the third day and you're coming again to judge the living and the dead we're looking forward to that consummation of all things to spend eternity with you give us this understanding and help us to understand your great love and to love you in return we pray in jesus precious name amen